0: Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your sometimes host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm here in the studio again today. So happy to be with you guys, with managing editor Medea Ocher and editor at large Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi,
1: Eric. Hi, Eric.
0: So we've gathered here together. We've gathered this coven together for our end of the year special episode in which we're going to share some of our favorite things in culture from this past 365 days.
2: Yeah, this was very difficult for me to put together.
0: It always is, right? It's like end of the year list. It's terrible. Also, spoiler alert, none of us just chose one thing. It's <laughs> true. For any category. <laughs> it's yeah. So just get ready for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is like there's always so much at the end of the year.
1: How do you remember, too, like what you've seen or? Oh, read I keep or- lists. You do? Yeah. You do? Uh, yeah. I want to do I'm that. I'm a
0: big list maker. Oh, I keep lots just of lists. Everything
1: you read and watch, you read. Everything down, I read
0: like- and everything I watch. Sometimes <sighs> with like little notes to myself if I really liked it, but yeah otherwise i would just forget
1: yeah so wow you, so this was easier for you because you just looked at your list and you thought, oh i like that i like that.
0: exactly it's also right. it's like a competition thing with dan of like oh. definitely who's he always reads more books than me i should admit so i keep the list basically to be like oh well i've seen this many we've both seen almost all the same movies but sometimes when we're like Wait, traveling we see different ones so
2: how many books has dan read this year
0: i can't remember the number but i'll find it out
2: <laughs> wow mm, Very inspiring very inspiring as a as a couple situation, <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm, sure, that's one way to to talk about it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I just have a tottering bookshelf, <laughs> which I just <laughs> looked at. <laughs> how about you, Kate?
1: Oh, how did I remember? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't know if I. I don't know if I remembered everything at all. Yeah, like your best of your end list. I feel like you kind of default go with things that uh, Are
2: were more recent. Mm-hmm. I tried to go back in my annals. Do you guys look at any lists? Do you trust any other lists?
0: You know, I did look at um, some lists recently for best films and found them. We talk about this a little bit in the episode, but I saw them from like New York Times. I hated most of their choices. So I don't trust those lists, but I do like them because I love hearing what other people liked.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's a good way to catch up on stuff you might have missed. Yes.
0: Exactly. Well, Well, yeah, we hope that our listeners will enjoy our lists. So let's get to it. Let's do it. All right. Well, we are almost at the end of 2019. And what a year it has been. So today we are going over a few of our favorite things from the past year. And Kate, which category do you want to start with?
1: I'd love to start with books.
0: Okay, great. Take it away.
1: Okay, so... For my favorite, although it's it's very hard for me to choose a mm, favorite, but yeah. I was very excited about the release of Marguerite Dura's nonfiction writings oh. this year And a title. It's called Me and Other Writing. And it was put out by Dorothy, a publishing project with his, one of my favorite publishers. Mm. And I read some of their other books this year, actually. This collection of stories called The Babysitter at Rest by Jen George, which came out a couple of years ago, which is totally mind-blowing amazing wild you know just completely hilarious and also um they put out this book creature by amina kane which is short stories that i that i love and she has a novel coming out next year anyways the marguerite Dura writings are just to me mind-blowing because they are so tied into her fiction that mm-hmm. the voice is almost it's about the consistency of her voice and also the way she kind of swerves among topics and they're very freeform essays and they're very surprising and strange. Mm. And it kind of relates to another one of my favorite books or a book I'm really excited about that I have not read all of, which are Lydia Davis's collected essays, which were also put oh. out this year. And and both with Marguerite Duran and Lydia Davis, I just, it's as though just the strength of their voices, no matter what topic, no matter what genre they're writing in, it's just amazing to me. And I'm a huge Margaret draw fan, so I was very, very excited about this. And I'm also a huge Lydia Davis fan. So those are my many choices. And I also want to say that someone we interviewed, Jenny O'Dell, How oh. to Do Nothing, I really appreciated that book as well for the exploration of, you know, the living on the internet and living in the real world and yeah. forming stronger connections to your present life and what's around you and reflections on the history of technology
0: i really loved that book as well that sounds great those are great ones those are good
2: ones also i just want to put an endorsement for jen george as a person because i (laughs) happened to meet her at a reading and she is just the best she's really funny i mean her book babysitter at rest is really is great um but you know, sometimes you meet writers that you admire and you're like, well, I could have done without that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> she... She is, lives up to her work. Yeah. She Which lives a, up very, to her work very high high bar. She's yeah. a total delight and was such a pleasure to meet. And we published one of her stories that is not in the collection on LARB, I think a few years ago. And readers can read it online. Mm-hmm. If you just Google Jen George, Ellerview of books. It's a really, really good story. Cool. Yeah.
0: So, Dale, what were your favorite books this year?
2: Okay. This was very hard and was very difficult list for me to put together. In the end, I considered Jenny O'Dell's book
0: also. Oh, you did? How to Do
2: Nothing. Yeah. And because I think it, it made an impression on me in a way that not a lot of books did this year, I think, at least also in terms of influencing mm-hmm. behavior. And I do try to find myself doing nothing more often. However, I think... The book that is my favorite book of the year was the Andrea Dworkin book, Last Days at Hot Slit, which was edited by Amy Shoulder and Joanna Fateman. It came out from Text in March 2019. And the reason I choose that is because there are not that many books that you read that are theory that feel invigorating in the same way that I think Andrea Dworkin felt, and that felt actually sort of it's like a little electric pulse. I kind of felt mm-hmm. reading that book. And so I think that was the only book this year that made me really feel that way. And that was a feeling that I remembered. So that is number one on my list and I highly recommend it to everybody. I also finished the Rachel Cusk outline series and I've already recommended her. So mm-hmm. I, I Those are to on get my list. It. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great, great, great. Those are genius. And then Sally Rooney, Normal People. Oh, yeah. That was a highlight for me as well. Reading no. that book and meeting her in person. Yes, another person who lives up to their talent on the page. Agreed. And then this is the last, last one, and it's not <laughs> one that came out in 2019, but I just feel like it wouldn't be right not to mention it so that more people would read it. Um, but it's a book by a Hungarian writer named Magda Jabo. It's called The Door, and it's very short, and I've already said this word once, but it truly is a genius book. And it's about a houseworker who comes into this family and she, she's an old woman and yet she has this weird strength and pull over the family and she doesn't let anyone go behind the door of her house. And I won't give away what happens, but it's like a, it's truly incredible and a great holiday read. I mean, I don't know about that, but because it has to do with like Hungarian peasants <laughs> in World War II. So there's some dark sides to it, but fantastic book.
0: Sounds good. So I'm going to second the Andrea Dworkin's Last Days at Hot Slit. I had been familiar in the way that I think a number of us were with Andrea Dworkin, primarily in the negative view of Andrea Dworkin, right? As some like, quote unquote, radical feminist who had kind of sold out to the right and became anti-porn and anti-BDSM and anti-sex in a number of ways. And because it was edited by both Johanna and Amy, I knew that it's like, this is worth considering again. And just like you, Deo, when I looked back at it, I was both struck with, like, the time period in which Dworkin was writing mm-hmm. and getting a real sense of this in another way is how great Johanna Faitman's opening introduction is. It just sketches out the whole history in which Dworkin became embroiled. And then reading her work, yes, it has this kind of liveliness to it. There's still many things I disagree with Andrea Dworkin about, but I think I got a better sense of her both as a feminist thinker and her place inside of a kind of feminist wave. So I love that. The other one is a little bit less eyebrow, which is Casey McQuiston's debut novel, Red, White, and Royal Blue which is probably not something that you would have thought that I would have read, but it's gay you new know, adult we don't know. Okay. Fiction. Gay
1: new adult? I wasn't so new aware adult, of that genre. So
0: I wasn't either. So I had been reading a bunch of gay YA mm-hmm. and new adult is when they're no longer in their teens or kind of in their early 20s. So oh. this story, Get Ready, it's the first son of the United States Basically, the novel pretends as if Trump never happened. So we mm-hmm. have a female congressman.
2: As I do to go to sleep at night. <laughs> sure, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: So we have, it's a woman president, and she is married to a senator who I believe is Mexican-American or of Mexican descent. And their son, kind of through a series of chance encounters, ends up falling in love with one of the princes of England. (laughs) And so it's all about their relationship with one another. It's very smutty and also like really fun and such a fast read. My husband Dan and I never read the same book. We were both reading that at the same time and racing to see who could get to the end first. This is also, it's done really well. There's going to be a movie that will come out about it
2: (gasps) Wow, uh, based
0: on it. So it's like really taken off. And I feel not so guilty in recommending this because every single one of my gay male friends has either secretly read it or read it in Mm. one of their book clubs. But
1: what is it about the book besides this premise that grabs you? Or can you not say?
0: To be honest with you, I don't know. Because if I try to break it down, it's not amazing writing, it's just a really fun story. It's really fun. And like I said, there's enough kind of eroticism to like keep you moving along, which is usually what Dan says why I don't like, you know, gay YA fiction is that it usually, the culminating thing is like a kiss. And I'm like, oh, you know, come covering. on. Yeah. yeah. Give yeah. me a little more, girl. Um, <laughs>
2: so new adult goes further. So new adult yeah. goes
0: a little further. <laughs> it goes and, all uh, the
2: way. At least and it goes face.
0: Yes, very much all the oh. way. And yeah, the Prince of England is a total, total bottom. Um, and it's...
2: <laughs> I mean, I bet he is in real life, too.
0: I promise you if you read it, well, I don't want to make too many promises, but I promise if you read it, you will race right through it. It's really, really fast. Mm
2: -hmm. I think it sounds really fun. It also seems kind of like a fun book to bring home for the holidays.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, also, my mom and my aunt both read it, also enjoyed (laughs) it. Though my mom (laughs) did say that she thought it was a little silly. (laughs) But anyways, those are my two picks.
2: That sounds really good. Those are great.
0: So, Um, Daya, do you want to pick the next category?
2: Sure. So, let's do best movie next. We're just zipping through these. Zip, zip, zip. Okay. (laughs) Zip on. All right. So, best movie. Kate, you go first.
1: Okay. I feel like I have to make a disclaimer, Mm. which is that I don't go to the movies very often, and I don't even watch movies at home very often. Kate is afraid of movies because she She had a bad experience with a movie as a child. No, I used to I I just it's just my post child life is Mm. just Mm. shriveled to very little cultural intake. Although
0: Wait, are you guys Disney Plusing, by the way? No.
1: Because we have a child? We are. And we have
2: no child. Yeah,
0: Are you Disney I stole my Disney Plus. Oh, sorry, I you got guys. My I thought you meant blogging.
1: specifically to me. Of uh, both day and I. No, I don't Disney Plus. I'm trying to say I don't do very much.
0: Okay, yeah. so I'm not
1: going to Disney. I wish we were in Disney Plus, I, but I would like to watch the morning <laughs> show because I've heard that's really fun.
2: Yeah,
1: and I like kind of trashy stuff. That sounds perfect <laughs> right. for me. Yeah. You know. So, but now I'm trying to up my game. I'm on Canopy, which I want to recommend. Ooh, I know yeah, everyone definitely. That's, it's amazing. Yeah. And this film that I'm going to say is my favorite of the year actually came out in 2016 but it was released mm. this year in the States. It's called The Competition. It's a French film by mm. this director, Claire Simon. And it's a like, cinema verite, and it follows the entire admittance process to this very prestigious French film school called La Famille. And in that wonderful way of someone like Frederick Weissman, it shows the complete microcosm of this place. And it shows every stage of the process of getting into it. And it spends time with the judges, with the students, all these hurdles they have to go through. It shows the kind of idiosyncrasy and callousness of many of the judges who are deciding Mm. the future of these children and they're smoking cigarettes and laughing about how dumb their ideas are (laughs) in these very (laughs) candid moments. And so, you know, you see how much these children want it or they're, you know, young adults or whatever and how desperate they are to get in this school. And then just the very individualized hands of faith that are deciding their future and it's mm. kind of chilling in that way but it's also amazing just to see this mechanism run and it's really funny i like those kind of movies that give you this sense of like an entire world and i think this film does this very well
0: yeah that sounds great it is really
1: great i really liked it and i got to talk to the director as well oh How? i did A Q&A with her for this event so oh. it was the pleasure
0: oh that's great yeah
2: my Best movie of the year is The Beach Bum by Harmony oh,
0: oh, nice. Curran. <laughs> I love that movie.
2: <laughs> now, if listeners look it up, you will find that it has like maybe a 55% on <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it was panned by a lot of critics. However, it's fantastic. <laughs> Beach Bum follows Matthew McConaughey, essentially playing Matthew McConaughey.
0: <laughs> the role he was born and was to play. Truly yeah.
2: the role he was born to play. He's playing a poet named Moondog, who's down in Florida Keys. And he's a poet. He's also just a, a character. He's kind of enjoying his life. He's married to this incredibly wealthy woman. He's constantly on drugs and constantly having sex. <laughs> <laughs> And I can't say that the movie has that much conflict in it because Matthew McConaughey is truly just like a summer breeze. (laughs) So there's not a lot of things that go wrong, but it is, one, a really great satire of the writing world because Moondog has one poem that he reads over and over and he eventually, and this is not to give anything away, I don't think, but is very rewarded for that. Very silly poem. Mm -hmm. But it's also just fun to watch him go through these exploits with like the kind of breeziness and no consequence joie de vivre that like I only wish I could have, but that I really enjoy watching. And also, you know, Snoop Dogg is in it. He plays a guy named Lingerie, which is fantastic. Who can argue with that?
0: And he's Moondog's wife's Lover. lover. yeah, Yes.
2: So everybody's kind of has lovers and there's really no solid... It's a very anti-heteronormative movie, too. I think probably not in a way that it gets credit for. There's Mm. a part where Matthew McConaughey is wearing like a sparkly bikini and a sarong, and somebody's like, what's up with the women's clothes? And he's like, what women's clothes? (laughs) So that part is great. And it's also probably the most anti-capitalist movie, certainly this year, and that I've definitely seen in a very long time, because there's just a complete resistance to any kind of engagement with the capitalist system. He's completely Mm, outside of it in every possible way. Moondog, as are most of the people that he's friends with. But it also ends in this like truly amazing burning down the house situation. And one of the highlights is a scene of a ton of homeless men frolicking in the pool of a beautiful mansion (laughs) so (laughs) it's a great movie and i highly recommend it i think it's really fun too
0: i love harmony corinne's representation of florida in general like in his films that one was a real standout though it's like dan could not get through it like i definitely (laughs) watched that one alone
2: i can imagine that there would be people who would not be able to handle the sort of the personality of it's that is bonkers. Moon Dog. Like that whole yeah.
0: movie is bonkers, but it's really fun. It's I agree. Really with fun. You. It was very enjoyable.
2: And Zach Efron shows up as like a coked out pastor boy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good casting. Good yeah. casting. Anyway, so great movie. <laughs> Highly recommend it.
0: All right. I want to say that in general for me, I think that this year was a weaker year for film than last year was. And one example that I would use is that last year, as you'll remember, and listeners might also. I was over the moon with Ari Aster's Hereditary. And mm. I loved that film, saw it three times in the theaters, could not stop talking about it. This year, he had *Midsummer*, Midsommar. And I saw it in the theater, only needed to see it once. It was good ish, but not great. And that's how I felt about many movies this Hmm. year. There were a number of movies that I thought were really fun. For example, Charlie's Angels, I thought was really fun. Knives Out, if you haven't seen it, especially since it's still running, super fun and just great as like a genre film.
1: How about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Did you see that?
0: You know, I did. I feel two different ways about that movie. I don't know. There's part of me that thinks it's a bit like white man's fantasy, Mm -hmm. but I also... Enjoyed much of it. The ending is crazy, and felt like he just didn't know how to end the movie, and was like, "Well, this is a Tarantino film, and that's how we're going to end it." But again, similar to most of the other films this year, that one I felt kind of like, "Yeah, you know." And I saw Marriage Story recently. Oh
1: God, you saw? No, it too?
0: you didn't like it.
1: What? What? I just, I didn't. I it. don't understand. I'm so confused
0: about why everybody is into yes, it.
1: I'm shocked and confused. I feel. The I same. wanted to talk about this actually. I'm Yeah. A- I'm very dismayed.
0: I think the movie has moments that were touching and poignant. But yeah, for most of it, I'm just like, so what?
1: It's such an actor's film and it's so much about the relationship between these two people. And I just didn't think either of the main actors really had their chops going. It seemed like they, I know there's a lot of memes about like, I'm acting, no, I'm acting harder, which does sometimes is what it feels like. They don't embody real people. It's just more about going through the motions of having these scenes. I think Mm -hmm. that that is the problem for me that as people, they're both somewhat unbelievable and fairly unlikable. Like I didn't, relate to either of them as someone who I would be you know even in Kramer versus Kramer Dustin Hoffman becomes this guy who you're rooting for and yeah. you're also understanding why Meryl Streep has left and there's a lot of emotional turmoil just watching the film this I just thought ugh. I
0: Did hope you?
1: neither of them get that child see I, see,
0: <laughs> <laughs> see I wonder if part of the problem with that film is that it's Noah Baumbach also trying to write about his own divorce
1: I guess, right. yeah.
0: And I think that there's a real tension between like who's going to seem like the good person, who's going to seem like the All right. bad person. And people person. had mentioned
1: that, but it, I just didn't think either of them seemed like real people. That was the problem. But mm-hmm. of course... But that's what I yes. wonder. Is
0: that the writing or is that the performance? I
1: think that was also a large part the writing. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty generalized and people are, you know, getting handed out MacArthur's like it's candy. You know, <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah. the accolades. There wasn't probably enough true conflict or complication. When they get into the kind of finer qualities the divorce. I thought that was more compelling. But anyways, I don't want to hijack your... No, no,
0: no. no. I'm willing for this one. But two films that really stuck with me. One was The Farewell with Hmm. Aquafina, where I think she really stepped out as an actress that's more than just playing jokes, right? So this was about a family travels to China. They know that the grandmother matriarch of the family is dying of cancer. No one's told her. So they've kind of arranged a sham wedding in order to all be together with her before she dies, so to see her one more time. And I think it's an interesting film in terms of how it represents cultural difference and kind of the chasm between people in the Asian diaspora living in the West and the kind of values around death, dying, notification, all that kind of stuff, and family ties and duty versus the family in the East. And so that, I thought, was really compelling. And Aquafina's performance also, it's like, what is the best way to confront someone's death, right? Would you want to know or would you not want to know? And whose right is it to tell someone that they are in fact dying? So I love that. The other movie that I really loved was Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which you guys did a wonderful interview with him. And that film really stuck with me, not just because it's quite beautiful to watch, but also for its rumination on questions about the disparity between classes and also the kind of vile and vicious things that we will do to get ahead. So I really love that. I should also say there are two films that I think would probably make this list once I see them. So (laughs) one is Uncut Gems, Mm. which I'm going to see tonight, actually. Mm. And then the other one is Pedro Almodovar's...
1: uh, That one is great. You saw that. Pain and Glory. Yeah, yeah, I would like to see that,
0: too. And that one I have heard so many great things about. I feel I'm also, like, pre-programmed to like any Almodovar film. That
2: was the other one on my list where I was like, should I genuinely recommend something? I mean, I, I think the beach film is genuinely fantastic but um (laughs) pain and glory is a really Uh, beautiful movie i want to see that too so those
0: were mine so accepting those two i think parasite Mm -hmm. and the farewell will be my top picks
2: this is just a very quick anecdote which is that we for some reason had john powers come to our offices one day right around the time when once upon a time in Hollywood Hollywood came out john powers is the npr film critic so i strangely heard his actual voice coming from the other room talking about once upon a time in hollywood and then i went outside to get lunch and quentin tarantino weirdly was just walking down the street carrying an amoeba bag
0: oh yeah it's a good one anyway (laughs) all right well let's see what about should we do tv
2: yeah yeah that's tv Let's do
1: it. I can go because mine will be short. Okay. Because again, <laughs>
0: <laughs> She don't watch I'm, TV. I'm, she don't watch movies. <laughs> I'm
1: feeling the the hole in my soul of cultural intake. But that's my part of my vow for this year is that I am trying to get into new things. And one show I've been watching a little bit of, which I'm really excited about, is Los Spookies.
0: Oh, Los uh, Spookies. Yeah. at yeah.
1: Uh, Spookies with Fred Armisen and Julio Torres and Ana Fabrega. It's really funny. I love the premise. And so good. I just, Julio Torres, I saw him on all these billboards for his HBO special. Oh, for My Favorite Shapes. Which yeah. was, which I didn't, I never knew who he was. We should also
0: say he's a writer for SNL. Yes. Yeah.
1: And he's hilarious. The show is about these people who do these like horror presentations mm-hmm. and it's great and totally up my alley. So I will watch more of that. But for my choice of what I did watch, there's a show on Netflix called Hip Hop Evolution. And it's, I guess it's won some Peabody's and some Emmy's. So Mm. there you go. This is the third season just was out this year. And it's a Canadian series and it's hosted by this guy named Shad K. And the format is weird because he's a former like experimental hip hop artist in Canada. So it's just mostly like Shad sitting down with, and he used to host the show Q. So he'll sit Mm. down with people and talk to them. And there's a lot of focus on Shad. If you don't know who he is, it's kind of like why are we, <laughs> <laughs> why are we staying with Shad this whole time? Like, there's so many bigger stars that we could be, you know, following. But he does a really good job of being the kind of centerpiece. And then they go out into the history of these scenes. So they had one about Biggie, you know, the story of Biggie and Tupac, East versus West. There was one kind of about these more like fringe acts, like underground hip hop, Eminem, and the Detroit scene, mm. LA. One of my favorite bands ever freestyle fellowship and this whole scene that like started in a health food store down in South Central and then they got to Atlanta you know the story of the dirty south which was like one of just the best I love any story that can look at a place and just all like the creative connections of Mm. people and how scenes start. And this was like one of just the best examples of it where they kind of like tease out the Atlanta Sound, which started from like skating rink music and Miami bass and then the way it evolved. And then you kind of hear, oh, yeah, like in the 80s, like. Salt and Pepper, Push It, that was the sound. And then, I mean, they weren't from Atlanta. And then it just follows this record label came to town and suddenly like anyone who had even like a disparate connection to them, if they were like their hairstylist, then they are getting a record deal. And then it becomes like (laughs) some of the biggest acts like TLC and OutKast. And all these people just started in the most, you know, organic just authentic way and that they were Mm. really coming out of the place where they were. And the stories are really funny and people are, it's just great. It's so good. I I really, really liked watching it. That sounds good. Okay. Mine
2: is actually related to that. Okay, So my best TV is Rhythm and Flow, which is also a Netflix show, also related to hip hop. It's a hip hop talent competition. (gasps) Oh, Cardi (laughs) B? (laughs) Yep. Hosted by Cardi B, T.I. from Atlanta and Chance the Rapper. And this is probably the most inauthentic way to become a rapper. (laughs) But it's essentially American Idol without censorship and with way more interesting performers and artists on it. And they also go around the country. I love watching auditions. So they audition all these rappers. And there's rappers in New York. They do auditions in LA. They do them in Atlanta. And for every place, they bring out the old school sort of legends to help them judge. So, Snoop Dogg is one of the people. I'm only talking about Snoop Dogg today, but he's one of the guys in LA. Outcast comes out, Big Boy comes out for Atlanta. New York was a little disappointing for me as a New York person. It was Fat Joe and Jada Kiss. I could do without Fat Joe in general, but anyway, love to Fat Joe. Who cares? Great show because the hosts are very funny. Rap battles are fun to watch. There's a lot of talent on it and it's pretty fast, goes by pretty fast. It's only about 10 episodes or so, so you can do it.
0: All right, that sounds good. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We now return to our best of 2019 show. So I just want to say at the top that there were a number of shows that ended this year that were very near and dear to me, one of them being Veep and the other one being Baskets. And that's just a few of them. I also should say, even though it's not great TV... I really did enjoy the third season of Pose, mostly because I want to know who Angelica Ross's agent is. That's the uh, the actress that plays Candy because she manages to show up after. I mean, it's not really a spoiler, but she dies early on in the season, oh. and she shows up as a ghost for no less than like three or four other episodes. Oh, I don't know. Amazing. Pose had ghosts. It didn't until Candy. <laughs> like it's. Ange- I'm telling you, and Angelica Ross also got in um, American Horror Story 1984 probably for me, the worst installment of the series. But she's great. And I could watch Angelica Ross in anything. And clearly her agent really deserves a holiday bonus for her because she got her so many placements like over and beyond what should be possible with writing. But what we ended up watching a lot of this year were actually telenovelas and comedies from Spain. So there were uh, one is Elite, which is so hot and so amazing. It's like Gossip Girl in Espanol. Um, but it's Amazing. So good. And again... I. What happens in it? So there's a murder in the first season and uh, it's at a very elite prep school. And then, of course, they have like a couple of like rich or or, I'm sorry, a couple of like kind of underprivileged kids from the neighborhood that get in because their school building is collapsing because it has like literally collapsing because there's no funding. And so then it's all about like how they interact with these uber wealthy people and then there's like a murder all around the middle of it. There's love, there's gay sex, straight sex, there's a throuple. It's got (laughs) everything. It's so great.
2: How, wait, where can people watch this?
0: That's on Netflix. Okay. The other one also (laughs) available on Netflix is Paquita Salas, which is so marvelous. It's actually, we have to put the um, subtitles on because it is too, they go so quickly and the the rhythm of the humor is so much that I can't always catch it in Spanish. Um, so we have to have the Spanish subtitles on. It's basically—have you heard of this show at all? So it's basically, (laughs) if you imagine a combination of Ab Fab and The Comeback in one, right? So two great shows in one. It's about basically a disgraced PR maven played by Bray Efe, who is—he plays it in drag. And it is unreal. It's so funny. She basically is trying to re-jumpstart her career— Uh, Which has fallen and so she just kind of gets into all these scrapes and like she has this old dated sensibility like she's more of like a 90s PR person trying to make it in a 2000s world and it is just hysterical but also moments that are quite touching. Wait what's it called again? It's called Paquita Salas. Mm.
2: That sounds so good. Good choices. Two good good examples. Those are good choices.
0: Okay, let's do art and I'll go because mine is like K I So I'm like, okay, K- nice. is with now Stevie the tables and film. are turning. Yeah, exactly. Eric. <laughs> Where I don't see as many. But I did cover a number of art exhibits for a piece that I wrote for a far magazine about. Art shows across the country around the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Mm. So there were a couple of really interesting ones. There was uh, the Guggenheim had a retrospective on Maplethorpe, which is again like reminded me of all the wonderful writing that Cobina Mercer has done about Maplethorpe and how complicated he is in a, as an artist, especially in terms of the question of race in his representation. Um, And then there was the Met's Notes on Camp exhibit that was really great, had a lot of interesting pieces. The Met Gala that followed on that theme was oddly underwhelming, which maybe is like camp can't necessarily be a theme for fashion. But then the last piece that I wanted to point out was that in L.A. at LACMA, they uh, debuted Isaac Julian's Playtime, Ooh. which was a short seri- a series of short films, I guess, um, that had some big stars. James Franco was in it. I forget some of the other people. But what's interesting about it is that it's Julian, who's Black British filmmaker, uh, whose work I've been interested in for a long time, kind of talking about the art world at the present moment and how the 2008 financial collapse and also just the circulation of money in the art market has changed how art is produced. So those were my three picks that I thought were great.
1: I like Isaac Julian's work a lot. Amazing. Well, then I'll go because if we're talking about gay Jeff And we always are. <laughs> yeah, when you're around.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, but I'll, there was a show, it's still up at MoCA in Los Angeles, and it's called With Pleasure, Pattern and Decoration in American Art, 1972 through
0: 1985.
1: Ooh. That's this good. is— It's just it's an
0: interesting period also. Yes. And yeah. it's
1: not. And so, you know, the predominant movement at this time would be like minimalism. And mm-hmm. so this show is the anti, <laughs> anti-minimalism, anti total maximalism, total more. It's very craft. Like so the, this kind of movement was about craft. It was mm. about, you know, different. It was about pottery, a different kind of Eastern models of like scrolls. And there's some paintings on fans. There's lots of Ooh. mosaics. There's lots of interiors. It's a huge show. It's There are a lot of Wait, artists in Wait, is that still it. up? Yes. Okay. Yes, and there's a lot of artists in it um, I had never heard of. I would say, like, maybe the predominant amount of artists I hadn't heard of. I guess pattern and decoration has some ties in with feminist art mm. because, like, Miriam Shapiro is this, you know, someone who started Woman's House in Los Angeles and was uh, one of the practitioners of feminist art. She would do these embroideries. Um, so there's there's some of that, like, the kind of, like, what's seen as trivial, what's seen as, Uh, you know, not, not fine art in this, in this movement. Um, but it, but it, and like, you know, wallpaper, that Mm, kind of stuff. But mm. it's also at this point, it, it, it looks reminiscent to me of, of a lot of contemporary art that is more figurative, that is more about just kind of bold patterns and illustrative. So it doesn't, so this, at this time, it seems like these artists were very prescient and it's just a fabulous
0: show. That sounds great. Yes.
1: And and I just want to and I can I yeah, yeah, can yeah. I do one more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a double one actually. So there was another one um uh, at David Kordansky Gallery by um a painter named Tala Madani. And this I don't know if I can't say this on the radio, but it was called Shit Moms. And these are these paintings that are like these kind of surrealist scenes of women and children. Actually, that kind of almost remind me of um, Jen George's writing where they're they're just it's like these impossible scenarios turned up to very high with kind of like some ghostly elements, um, bodily. Mm. They're just but and they have this like very narrative, strong narrative quality. It's nice to see, you know, motherhood represented in art. We've yeah, talked about yeah, it in yeah, yeah, past yeah. episodes, but then also just in this really funny, irreverent, insane, disgusting way. That sounds great. That was really yeah. great. Um, that's that's. I think that's traveling now to some other gallery. Um, okay. But check out her work. And then also my husband um, had a show this year. Oh. Also at David Kordansky. Uh, and that was a wonderful show, kind of having some similarities with the pattern and decoration movement Ooh. in some ways. Um, And that is was called Studies for 2020. And his name is Zach Harris.
0: Oh, great.
2: Sounds great. And what kind of work does he do? He
1: makes these paintings that have a lot of carving involved. So he does a lot of woodworking and they're scenes. They're kind of like eschatological scenes of at times, but then also having some kind of like religious quality. Like they're very visionary, freaky, like astrology and
2: myth. And they're, they're wild. They're, yeah. Well, that Sounds good. Yeah.
0: What about you, Daya? Uh,
2: my choice be the David Hammonds show that was at Hauser & Wirth over the summer, I think. And it might be traveling. I'm actually not sure. But uh, David Hammond's African-American conceptual artist. And the thing that I really loved about this show is that one you can see a clear vision in it. So the, part of the the most noticeable part of it was a sort of tent city that he erected in the middle of Hauser and Worth, which has this, which is a big gallery downtown here in LA. And so, you know, that you could sort of see homelessness sort of right right when you entered the space. Though when I was there, actually a little girl, I overheard a little girl asking, telling her mom which tent she wanted to buy. No way. <laughs> so no she way. thought she was in a tent store. No but I thought that was really cute. But, um, David Hammond's practice, I mean, he's been, you know, a practicing artist, I think, since the 70s, 80s, is also, it's both conceptual and often funny and has these really sneaky, funny ways of subverting the art market. For example, he sold Snowball, which in its current form is just a little bowl of water. (laughs) Um, And there's a a little freezer in Hazernworth. and full of books about the this, this, this snowball practice. The, the entire show is, is so good. And mm-hmm. I also, I think there was a profile about David Hammons in The New Yorker last week. So I would also recommend that. But really just such such an interesting artist with such a variety of output. I mean, there's, there's performance art, there's paintings and paintings and sculptures. And he's, it's really a great, great show.
0: That sounds great. That was a wonderful show. Sounds great. All right, let's tackle podcasts. Let's do it. So this was the year in which I definitely turned away from like any political or news podcasts, which had been the the mainstay of my podcast diet. Um, Why? It's just I couldn't anymore. Mm -hmm. It was not making me feel like I was learning anything. You know, we have a little bit of like news overload where it's like I felt like at the end of the week I was hearing the same story like 10 different ways. And then it was like, I just don't need this in my life. So I filled that up with there is a great podcast by Eric Marcus called Making Gay History, which is actually so Marcus wrote a book of the same title, I think in like the I'd have to check, but I think it come I think it came out in like the mid to late 90s. So it's an older book, but it was an oral history of basically LGBTQ activism and 20th century history and so these are just basically like recordings of his taped conversations with the people that eventually would make their way into the book so Sylvia rivera um a number of other kind of activists from that period and then also my favorite part of it is that he interviews people that you've probably never heard of um and i certainly hadn't and just kind of both the archival quality of they're just like you know everything starts out like tape one side a you know like it's that kind of old school recording and they're just great i just loved hearing them both for like the personalities that he captures and then also across i think he has like six seasons now of like the broad sweep of gay history that he covers really really enjoyed it
1: wow kate i turned away from podcasts in general this year
0: Mm, not not
1: purposely but because the main time i used to listen to them was when i was walking my child to try to get him to sleep and, oh. and now he, I didn't have to do that anymore. So I, I didn't have as much of an opportunity to listen to them, but I still do all the political ones. And this was also the first year that I myself tried to make my own narrative podcast, which was fun. Um, and and before that, it was just the one I made was a story about Angeline, the famous the oh. billboard queen. Yeah. And for inspiration for that, I listened to this podcast on KCRW called Welcome to LA by David Weinberg. Mm. That, is really really well done these and I and now I also having tried to do something like this I understand how much work goes into a project like this it's basically like he wrote a book in podcast form. Um, They're they're autobiographical stories of people that he first met when he came to Los Angeles. And somehow he got just a ton of tape. So a lot of them, you know, happened like 10 years ago and he's following up, but he happened to just be recording when he met a lot of these people. And they're, you know, stories of people, more maybe obvious things like, oh, people who are making up, you know, working in porn or... Mm. but But then there are ones of, a friend of his who had a dream of, who was studying architecture and then came out to Los Angeles and also bought billboards because he was trying to be um, a rock star,
2: <laughs> but that did,
1: that didn't work out at all. He sold like no albums and and that that whole story is um, juxtaposed with some of the history of Frank Lloyd Wright because his friend had been studying with Frank Lloyd Wright and it's just it's like at a different level of uh, other things I've heard. It 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 was, it, it was really impressive.
0: That sounds great. Yeah.
1: So that's uh, called Welcome to L.A. Oh, and then also um, recently there's these two podcasts kind of similar that came down, uh, that came out about women artists. So one is um, from Freeze and it's called Bow Down. Uh, and Jennifer Higgy is the host of that. And the other is um, put out by the Getty and it's called Recording Artists. And Helen Millsworth, who was the curator at MoCA, is the host of that. And both of them kind of look at... Women artists of note, underrepresented women, um, and 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 they're and they're they're interlocuted by other artists.
0: Wait, so is it like profiles of specific well, artists, or yeah, is it interviews it, with them?
1: No, most of them are dead. Okay. But okay. There's some. There's a lot of archival footage, you know, woven in, and then they'll bring in other artists to talk about why these people were so, you know.
0: Ooh, that sounds great. What's the name of it again?
1: Well, the, the, those two. One is called Bow Down. Bow Down. And the other one is called Recording Artists.
0: Okay, great. Those are great. What about you, Dea?
2: My podcast tastes, as both of you know, are, are very lowbrow. And I think I'm continuing this tradition. Well, I don't. I, this is maybe not totally fair. And I think this might be a controversial choice in general. But the podcast that made the biggest impression on me this year, and I think it made an impression on a lot of people, is called The Red Scare. Oh. <laughs> Podcast. It's a contra- controversial, as I said, and I'm not sure that I. It's hosted by two two women. One is named Anna Hachian, and the other is Dasha Nekrasova. They are both Soviet immigrants, so I have some affinity there. But um, they, the whole show is just them just talking to each other and generally having bad opinions <laughs> for the most part, and. But something that seemed interesting about the podcast is it's rare that you hear two people discuss something without feeling like they are worried about how they sound and what opinion others might have of their Mm -hmm. discussion. And Anna and Dasha, they don't really have a sense of that. They're, They're performative in a different way. And it's also fun to hear... So it's fun to hear two people not care. Essentially, is, yeah. is is what that is, um, and it's also interesting to see that you know a medium like the podcast, which has something like you know Kate, what you were talking about, or Eric, what you were talking, which is these high, these produced sort of mm-hmm. beautiful um, works of history and art and criticism and exploration. Um, is also lends itself to these two women essentially just whispering to each other in their Brooklyn bedroom, you know. Um, <laughs> right. And that somehow that can also make an impression on an audience. Um, a huge impression. A right. huge impression, yeah. And, you know, I don't really agree with them, I think, most of the time. And most of the time, it's... The show is a little difficult to listen to. Um, but it can also be really fun and and funny, and kind of a a fun glimpse into uh, a sort of a private conversation between friends, really.
0: That sounds good. These are great recommendations. So riffing off of Medea's <laughs> scandalous podcast, yes. uh, let's talk about our favorite scandals this year. So what we should tell listeners is that we agreed that we were not going to talk about any Trump scandals. A, how would you choose? Right. Um, and also, so boring, everybody's already talking about them. Yes. So, my favorite scandal, which I think is also Medea's, was the Lori Laughlin, Felicity Huffman, and USC admission scandal, which— A beloved scandal. It was so great. It's like, also, I mean, everybody was— Part of this is like working in higher education, so it's like everybody is interested in it for a variety of reasons. But also, it's just, like, to me, this was one of those stories that cracked open Hollywood, but also class politics, you know, so it kind of made... So basically, for the two people that don't know what we're talking about, right, it's that, like, Lori Laughlin, Felicity Huffman, and a number of other people... Yeah. paid basically to have their children admitted to USC.
1: Right. Cheat and, cheat on and entrance pre- exams. Yeah, cheat
0: on and pretend that they were athletes that they weren't, like a person who was on the rowing team but had never picked up an oar in her life or something right. like that. On the one hand, it affirmed the truth in this country that we often sweep under the carpet, which is that rich people have access to everything right and that in fact like wealth is a way of subverting this allegedly meritocratic order of which college is supposed to be it's only the best it's only the brightest and that brings me to the other funny part about this which is usc like i don't know if this is like i i don't feel this way in general in my life like i i I am a ucla grad but it's like i don't know if that's why but i'm like why is everybody trying to get into USC? It's like, why weren't you trying to get into Yale or Harvard or like Berkeley or a place that mattered? You know, it's like USC. I guess it's because it's like the kids need to be close to home or whatever. I'm not sure. But the other part of it. The the coach was bought. Well, right? yes, but it's like you could yeah, ostensibly I mean, buy coaches anywhere. Absolutely. Like, Aim higher. yeah. I can't, you know, come on, Lori, like shell out the extra 100,000 and get <laughs> them into Yale. Um, but my, uh, the other part of that was like, why do these parents care? Like a, a child of Lori Loughman or a child of Felicity Huffman is going to be fine they don't, and maybe this is me not thinking about college in the right way, is that it's like they don't—they already have the connections. Mm-hmm. What more do they need from college? Their parents will just get them a job. Kate's shaking her head, so that means she's got some intel.
1: No, I don't have any. What's the
0: law? <laughs> well, file? Well, when I talked
1: to Lori recently, she was saying yeah. it was about more than that. No, no, I don't think it's about just, just the connections alone. You have to have the full package. You cannot go to college. That would look really bad, right?
0: Well, sure, but like, so it's a bragging can, rights thing. Sure,
1: of course. But then
0: again, why USC?
2: That I don't know. That right? Okay. <laughs> so I'm not.
0: I'm not alone here. It's like, anyways. My
2: favorite part about it was imagining approaching maybe my parents or like um, immigrant parents with like a suggestion that they do this. That you know, like if I had come, come gone up to them and been like, "Will you just Photoshop my face onto a?" soccer player's body and then we'll just submit that together. They'd be like, "I what are you talking? <laughs> like, what kind of insane things are you saying? So to to just like imagine the, the flip side of that, which is like other families doing this, I think is really funny. Right. Um, but yeah, this was just, it, it's such a good scandal and I, it must just be, right, package, reputation, doesn't look good for your kids to not go to college, although... I, you know, I'm not sure why that doesn't look particular. There's many things that one can do that are just as valuable as college. I
0: was speaking to a friend of mine who teaches and who I will not reveal, but who teaches at one of these like elite kind of high schools in Uh, Los Angeles. And her perspective was that it's like, it is just like, like maybe sometimes these actors or actresses or these kind of celebrities may not have themselves gone to college right. or Good to like point. a named college and therefore it's like this is a way that they can show like it. it is like you were saying it's a bragging rights thing it's like my child like got to go to this school right. you know
1: I think it's also right. about entitlement right oh, like sure. why should yeah. you why should you not go to this you know I don't know you, you seem to have a low opinion of USC. Sorry, yeah, and I probably
0: shouldn't. I, <laughs> but you know. why
1: shouldn't why shouldn't your you know they didn't work hard, they didn't get the grades. Why shouldn't they still go to USC if they want? You know.
0: Yeah. Like that. I wonder if yeah. also it's this general <clears throat> thing that I get from parents now that it's like there's such a mania about college that I wonder if part of it is like all of the things we've been saying, but also just that it's this feeling like any anything I can do to get my kid like over the line, I'll do. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, it's. I, I mean, in some ways, it's it's a very very funny scandal. Um, I loved every second of it. Um, and then in some ways, it's also like kind of dark. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't <laughs> be just, a scandal without
0: that. Right. Uh, right that's yeah. true. And the poor um, kids. Like yeah. that. I feel a little bit bad for them because who know, they probably didn't have much choice in all of this, and you know. They're well, too, young, but also
2: yeah. that. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of thing just it doesn't necessarily just rob other people of a of a place in that college, but it, it robs. <laughs> that generation of students any agency in terms of what they accomplish in their lives and what they go on to do. And uh, that seems like a really sad thing to do to your kids, potentially. Though also, you know, they've got millions. Who cares?
0: Also, yeah, they'll (laughs) be be fine. fine. (laughs) They'll be fine.
1: Um, Okay, well, my scandal is uh, the darker side of children being preyed upon. Uh-oh. Oh. Oh. I mean, yeah, I mean, no, it is. It really is. Um, And So I can't really say it was my favorite scandal, but this was the one um, well, I have two, and they kind of relate, but I'll try to keep it quick. So there was this article in New York Magazine on the, and it was published by the Cut, and it was um, the Stolen Kids of Sarah Lawrence. Did either of you happen yes. to read this oh, about this guy yeah, Larry did. Ray, who oh. you know instituted this kind of cult of all these college? He he moved into their dorm, and then he yeah. just started to mind control all these kids. And he formed this cult, and there's also this whole second part of this, like his all his shady business dealings, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. was one of those stories. It, I was, I was truly, truly shocked. Yeah, I could not believe. Also, he didn't sound. I mean, I don't want to be shallow, but you look at pictures of this guy, and he he's not particularly good looking. It's just hard for me to imagine these young college student girls like wanting to be with him, like and being
0: so enthralled, to giving him. up yeah. their families
1: for this guy who's
2: like hey. seems like a loser. You remember being a college student girl? I did not care what older men look like. Oh really? Oh yeah, I was like completely indiscriminate. I was like whatever whoever seems smart and has um, I guess that's true, power right. and charisma. Maybe I
1: maybe I was slightly more shallow at the time. I was into like <laughs> at least like somewhat. But although, you know, I guess that's debatable. Kate and I yeah.
0: only <laughs> wanted to sleep with the hot professors, <laughs> yeah, was, but, thanks.
1: But no, I took any were, of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hot is relative, but this guy I, sure. I I I could not say he he was he was like, you know, just a total yeah loser, yeah, um and and so, and that I guess that so this year i I felt like it was these stories of scandal where there were other people complicit, It was like I also was really you know blown away by the um surviving R Kelly.
0: Oh um, yeah, uh, yeah,
1: miniseries and 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 also similarly, like confused why what this, this seems like these such a horrible situation. How could these people continue to stay in this place, or how could parents let their children go into these uh, very like compromised situations with R. Kelly, even after they had you know known about all the information that had come out? And so both those stories. Kind of show like the many hands within, yeah. you know, terrible yeah. things happening, and I think that the one about um, Larry Ray at Sarah Lawrence, like the university, really couldn't intervene that much, and and certainly didn't, you know, and so I don't know. The, those were those were very disturbing and shocking to me. It's yeah. the
0: same with the uh, what was the other one that came out around uh, Leaving Neverland, similar yeah. about yes. Michael yeah. Jackson. It's I I was struck by exactly the same thing that you were, Kate, is like. How did all these people that both know but don't want to know? but uh, there's so many complicated. also, as somebody who is not a parent, it made me terrified to ever be a parent. it's
1: It's really scary. And I don't and I, I know we're not going to talk about Trump, but I mean, there's, in these cases, it's like the crime is heinous. It's like, yes. you know, yeah. it's, it is. the. But then the when you tell the story, it is also about the cover-up and the kind yeah. of willing denial of the crime. And that is like what makes them reverberate so strongly. And yeah. I think that's kind of the, if anything, that's the way to look at them. It's not just about this one person who's a monster and who mm-hmm. has control and hold on people, even though that's very hard to understand if you've never been in that situation. Sure. But at the sure. same time, it's like the way society kind of... um doesn't intervene enough in, in abuse situations at all. or and it's not aware enough of them. And yeah. it's just, yeah. yeah, it's heavy.
0: All right. Well, <laughs> um, on an uplifting note, should yeah. we close out with what we are hoping to get into more in 2020? Yes. All right. Medea, do you want to start? No. Okay. Kate, do you want to start?
1: Back back me. Okay. Um, Um, So I would like to start laying the ground for a more progressive mayor choice in the 2022 election in Los Angeles. I'm really tired of Eric Garcetti. I just, I didn't understand what a neoliberal was. Until I started to look at the work of Eric Garcetti and he just (laughs) bothers me. I just, I just, I don't like him and I, and I really like Los Angeles. And I think that if Mm -hmm. we had a progressive mayor and this is a city that could, you know, I think this is really a city that could. And I just imagine how excited I would be voting for that candidate because in the last, um, in 2017, in the mayoral election, there wasn't really anyone who could hold a candle to Garcetti and there wasn't anyone... It was a viable other choice, but um, I did read that only 20% of the city voted last election Ugh. for mayor. So that I would love to help, like, I'm not even sure how to do this because I don't really have much of a foot in local politics, mm-hmm. but I would like to help, like, root out someone and do work, campaign work for them and support them any way I can.
0: That is great. That is really and great. I feel now so ashamed that the thing that I'm excited about getting more into in 2020 is just reading more collections of essays, you guys. <laughs> oh, my god! Oh, <laughs> um, wait till
2: you hear mine, Aaron.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. So we'll just descend uh, <laughs> yeah. as we go down the line. So it's like, yeah, I wanted to, um, I've been thinking a lot about the essay as form and like what it does and how it reflects um, contemporary culture. So I've been looking at kind of some of the greats like uh, Joan Didion, you know, kind of these like previous essayists, uh, Audre Lorde, lots of her work. Um, and then trying to kind of look at, uh, I've been reading recent collections by Gia Tolentino. I forget the guy's name now, but the guy who wrote Pulphead.
1: John Jeremiah Sullivan. Yes, yeah.
0: that's it. Oh, okay. Um, Very good. Thank you. I'm looking at those kind of work and just want to think more about the essay as form and like, what it can do.
1: Because you want to write more essays in 2020?
0: Yeah, and thinking more about, like, the the different narrative structures that essays can take and, like, what it is that that form can do.
2: Okay, well, well you've sort of given me another idea for a thing that I did not think of before I came here that I do want to get more into, which is probably writing. I should—I do—I, as an editor, I usually— you know, handle other people's writing for the most part, and handle a lot of emails, but I have been thinking more about my own writing. And yeah. um, after having gone, we, my family and I visited Georgia this past summer, and I did Georgia the country, and I did manage to write a little bit about that experience. And it's just, a, you know, I, I've, I, it's a muscle that I forgot that I had, and. I should practice it probably a little bit more. But what I came in with was, <laughs> and here I will read it from the piece of paper that I typed this on, which was cooking, question mark, <laughs> TV, and nothing. So oh, nice. um, To recap some of what we spoke Yeah. About yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I've been thinking a little bit about the Jenny O'Dell book, as I mentioned earlier, and this, the practice of doing nothing. And that I've been trying it a little bit recently. And the practice of doing nothing, again, um, for listeners who haven't read the book or didn't listen to the show, it isn't just, you know, sitting there staring at a wall, but figuring out ways to engage with the world in a way that is non-productive necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have a goal in mind, doesn't necessarily have financial stakes or professional stakes, that it's just walking down the street and looking at leaves or Jenny O'Dell made friends with some crows, which is my literal nightmare, so I will not be doing that. Um, But ways of just existing and being and doing activities that are in the world and engaged and active uh, without necessarily being productive. So that is something I wanted to get into more next year. not quite sure what that looks like as I hate birds and I hate nature, but... Maybe you could get into mushroom picking and then cook... With the mushrooms you pick. Right? Oh,
0: I like that.
2: Sure. I mean, start with the mushrooms you pick. <laughs> <laughs> Is there mushroom picking in Los Angeles?
0: Probably. Probably. I don't know. Go to Runyon Canyon. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. Like that. Just sure find, it, find a forest somewhere. Yeah. Maybe yeah. in the well, Santa Monica Mountains.
2: Next time you see me, I'll be wandering Runyon Canyon looking for mushrooms. <laughs> It's Which beautiful. actually sounds like a different activity, yeah, exactly, <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, laughs> exactly. exactly. Oh. than um, just a nature walk. Um, and I bet mushrooms are pretty easy to find there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you know where to go, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh,
2: anyways, um, yeah, or, or who to approach. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well.
0: All right. So I guess that is it. Th- those were um, our favorite things from 2019, and I'm sure that. Many of our listeners agree and disagree with our choices. Please let us know. And we would love know. to hear that. Yeah. yeah. So we wish everybody a happy and healthy end of the year and a joyous new year in 2020.
2: Thanks to all for listening. Thank you. See you in Running Canyon. <laughs> See you. <there.
0: laughs> with mushrooms. <laughs> You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolfe. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.